Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include dropping the S in GSE, my interview with Varisks Kingsley Greenland on the state-level structural issues with property insurance and current state of federal flood insurance, and why mortgage rates aren't helping applications. Thanks to this week's podcast sponsor, Bill. Built is powering smarter and faster money movement for the entire construction and real estate ecosystem, all while reducing risk. To learn more, visit getbuilt.com. Today I head to Phoenix for the AZAMP annual conference, and I'm reminded that change is inevitable, except from a vending machine. The mortgage industry is constantly changing, although Freddie and Fannie have been a somewhat stabilizing influence. But explaining to someone not in the mortgage business what Fannie and Freddie, the government-sponsored enterprises, or GSEs do, is not easy. After being in conservatorship for 15 years, is it time to drop the S in GSE? Let's just hope they don't become another Amtrak. One topic that has come up at a few conferences besides agency buybacks seems to be agency demand for LIP and VLIP borrowers. Are Fannie and Freddie pushing hard for low-income purchase and very low-income purchase business and requesting high percentages of those products with the threat of hitting their overall pricing? Some would say that in this environment, with everyone fighting for every deal and reduced volume, it doesn't seem fair or even logical to have such a high demand for sellers with something outside of their control. Any question should be addressed to your Fannie or Freddie account executive. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome back to the show Varisks Kingsley Greenland to talk about state-level structural issues with property insurance and the current state of federal flood insurance. He leads the mortgage risk analytics practice at Varisk Extreme Event Solutions. Where would you like to start? Would you talk about stuff that's going on? In the news, whether it's climate stuff, do you want to talk about NFIP? What's what's kind of top of mind for you? I think it makes sense to review some of the structural issues with the state level property insurance markets, because those are driving the ability for insurers to properly price the risk, whether that's from climate change increasing frequency and severity for some perils or if it's more an issue with them being able to digest the increased exposure from influences on the built environment and uh, the challenges of tracking that to uh, inflation costs and boosts in uh, rebuild expenses it's a headline out there when you hear, oh, State Farm and Allstate leaving California or Florida is having a tough time uh, with insurers in the face of all these hurricanes. And I know you tuned into a, a show I did with my dad a couple of weeks ago where we we talked about this. And essentially, if it gets down to where there's one or two insurers left in each state, that's not a viable solution or long-term solution to any of this. So maybe I should back up actually and say, what what are the state-level structural issues going on that that you're seeing out there with property insurance? Well, it varies by state as 
they are, you know, they have different regulatory regimes and those reflect uh, over time the, the preferences of states in terms of how they view things like consumer protections or uh, government support. In the case of California, I think it's well established that they have a consumer oriented uh, legislative methodology that's reflected in limited ability for insurers to pass on price increases. And if the way that an insurer's actuary models suggest that they have to charge a higher premium to cover the increased risk, if the insurer isn't able to pass that on to the purchaser of the policy, then have limited responses. They can either participate in a state where they feel like they're not, not feel where they, they model that they're not getting enough premium to uh, compensate for the risks they're taking. If they stay in the state, you could look at that as an agreement to take a small loss. And in many cases, it's uh, suggested that they pass on those premiums that they can't earn in a highly regulated state onto policies in a less regulated state. So that's the case that non-catastrophe risk borrowers are in a way subsidizing the decisions of individuals to live in flood or fire prone areas. So you're protecting one consumer yet giving kind of a not so fair deal to another consumer, whether or not uh, they're aware that this is happening. I know there's been some fighting recently over the NFIP uh, National Flood Insurance Program. What's the latest there from your end? And I guess, it, does it come down to that the models that the industry is adopting to measure climate change aren't keeping pace with what's actually happening? Or what's, what's all the fighting about? I think that that's one aspect of it in that you have a insurance market, a property insurance market, specifically flood risk, where borrowers and purchasers in flood zones or in zones that might be exposed to this have gotten used to, both in terms of their budget and their consumer behaviors, uh, they've become conditioned to a subsidized rate. The rate that the NFIP has charged, uh, they'll be the first to tell you this is not reflective of the payouts that they've had to do over the over a series of years. So they recalibrate, they expand and change the flood zone, and that determines who is required to purchase these policies. And within those, they look at different uh, different risks because you're not just in a flood zone. Within that certain area, you have uh, high risk and low risk. And they've run into resistance. I think recently it's eight states where just in trying to pass down even, even moderate price increases, like $18 a month, the states are saying that our borrowers can't support this or this, this isn't equitable, this is targeting the wrong communities. And I think that that signals the type of resistance that you'll see as additional risk is priced elsewhere, not just flood. And there are examples of this in how 
the states have seen increases in their fair plans. And uh, we can talk about fair plans a bit if you'd like to. I don't know if these are well understood. Sure, let's talk about fair plans. Uh, and I also kind of want you to provide an overview of the, the current state of federal flood insurance and what's going on there. Yeah, well, the, the current state is that they've been taking losses for for many years. And that signals that the premium that they're charging uh, borrowers in these flood zones, the premium is not as high as the payout. So that's not a sustainable pricing model unless you have buy-in from the citizenry. It's ultimately a taxpayer event, uh, unless you have buy-in that for some some reason you want to subsidize these payouts of flood premiums. One of the issues is just the way flood works. It's not as if you take your lumps and then it's unlikely it's going to happen to you again. It's actually the reverse where the NFIP will look at uh, something like 3% of their policies are responsible for 40% of the payouts. So if you look at an insurance pricing model as something that is supposed to provide uh, for low frequency, high severity events that sort of prices and transfers the risk away. If instead that's viewed as high frequency and high severity for the same properties, you're no longer looking at an insurance model, you're just paying out. And if that's something that cities, states, governments want to do, that's that's not my decision, but the insurance model isn't fit for the problem. So what the NFIP has done is they've revamped the maps and they've changed the pricing. And when you change pricing, that's, you know, some people are in their view going to win and and some are going to lose. And if your constituency is for a while been enjoying a subsidized rate and in context of many other pressures uh, on, on borrowers and a lot of these communities, they're now uh, asked to eat a higher rate for what they view as uh, something hasn't changed because they're not out looking at flood models, right? I mean, they don't, the citizenry doesn't really understand how the risk has changed. You're going to see pushback against that. Now, how does this translate into things like a fair plan? If I'm a property insurer in a given state, we all would have more or less the same view of the risk. Uh, Look at the same natural catastrophe models, have access to similar data. In fact, property insurers have uh, an exemption to the Sherman Antitrust Act. They are able to share lost data with each other. So between a group of uh, actuaries, we should all have more or less the same view of risk. And if a property insurer chooses not to offer uh, insurance, uh, not to renew a policy, then the borrower can go next door, yet it's expected that they would hear a similar result. It's not not likely that 
two insurers would have a widely different view of risk. Their company economics might differ a bit, yet they tend to see things the same way, same data, same structure. So if I can't renew my policy and the terms of my mortgage require me to hold property insurance, then I have to go and get it from something called the FAIR plan, which is state-run, not state-run, state-offered, admitted insurer-funded last resort options. So these are limited coverage plans at a higher cost for properties that can prove that they weren't able to get coverage through the rest of the admitted market. So what does that mean? It means that it's a concentration of the highest risk properties into the same pool. There are some research papers that suggest the insurer of last resort has become the insurer of first resort for the highest risk properties. In economic terms, this is textbook use case of adverse selection. It's like when a life insurer requires you to take an examination because they understand that all of the sick people will be the first to try to get life insurance. The FAIR plan in many ways reflects those economics. The difference is that when a FAIR plan has to pay out, which in theory is a higher, arguably a much higher probability than a traditional admitted plan, those losses are distributed across the rest of the insurers in the state in proportion to their market share. The result of that is that the largest participants in a state are also going to take the largest share of the plans, not only that they didn't want to underwrite, but that their competitors didn't underwrite. Those are pretty frustrating economics that, in a sense, can drive out the largest insurers They're looking at it and saying, oh, I I have the highest probability of taking the biggest loss because I have the most market share. What's equitable here? I guess it's kind of a blunt way to to say it. um, In your opinion, and maybe a better way to phrase it would be, how do you see this issue continuing to evolve? Because if I'm I'm part of the 97% that only Mm -hmm. has 60% of the the payouts, I'm not very happy here that I'm footing the bill for the 3% that has 40% of the payouts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I understand the question. And this this came up actually right after Katrina in that you can look at some data that says based on the amount of aid that was sent and the rebuild cost, you would have been better off if you had a magic wand to just pay everyone to move and give them a couple bucks. And it would have been a more equitable solution to rebuild outside of a flood zone. That comes up frequently. And if you look at the distribution of where this risk is, it's both in low to moderate income communities, which creates just all sorts of headaches. And that's a lot of the uh, a lot of the inertia behind sort of slowing down the actuarial pricing of the risk. The, the other piece is that you have uh, LMI communities that are outside of a flood zone subsidizing jumbo mortgages and high balance beach houses. So it's it's an issue that I think should be decided and will be decided at the state level. 
The NFIP is different is that it has federal flavors, but in terms of the ability to price the risk, it's, it's not likely that you'll see uh, political interest in the policy of pricing the risk, both at the property level and at the community level, if that puts the cost on those least able to bear it. Uh, so this should be decided, I think, both publicly and with data and research, but in many cases, we're in early days uh, in terms of modeling and understanding how flood, hurricane, wildfire risk are expected to develop over time. But even near term, you look at the signals that individuals aren't able to digest even moderate price increases because their their household balance sheets are so strained. Uh, that's, again, I think a problem that really needs to be uh, solved at the local level because there's so much variance in uh, which communities are impacted and, and how able they are to uh, price in that additional risk. Has this started to bring about wholesale changes with where people live? You said it's early days. At what point do you think we'll see major migrational patterns as a result of this? Or I guess maybe on a, a personal level, has any of this influenced where you decide to reside since you're so deep in the weeds here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I, I saw that Zillow recently quoted something like 80% of new home buyers consider climate risk in their purchasing decisions. I, I don't see it that way. I think that especially in an environment with high rates and limited housing stock, people are just looking to get a mortgage they can afford. You know, it's not really a buyer's market to the extent they can look at two like properties and, you know, bid on the one that has lower climate risk. I don't think we're there. Uh, I think that to the extent these additional costs start to really trickle down to the monthly payment at the point of purchase, not after the fact. I think that if you signed up to purchase an immovable asset on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage, it's, it's unlikely that the additional cost of uh, insurance is going to be the, the factor that gets you to move. But if you view the context of the next 10 years of having uh, less state and fiscal support for any number of causes than the prior 10, then if you're forward looking, you might decide to move, but there's just so much cost. It's so sticky once you get into a property, you have all these fees, you have interest rate exposure. So I, I think we're a ways off, when I say ways, I, I don't know, pick a number, five to 10 years from this really, becoming part of the consumer's borrowing and buying decision. However, that can accelerate rapidly if the current state of dislocation equilibrates suddenly, which I think MBA wrote some pretty good articles on this. There's also a paper by Sean Bacchetti where he talks through the stranded asset situation that things kind of move so quickly that borrowers don't have an opportunity to relocate before 
their mortgage is on a property that can't be insured. So you're, you're kind of stuck there. So it's a real challenge, but I I think that we're still many years away from climate risk and catastrophe risk making an impact in borrowers' decision on where they live. I think that as long as we have availability issues, that in terms of tiering what drives borrower behavior, I, I think that that's kind of in the middle. It's not ignored, but won't affect where you choose to buy a house if you have limited choices. Well, I was going to say it's sticky until a major climate catastrophe mm-hmm. really hurts your damages your property, and then right. uh, might might uh, dislocate some of that stickiness. Uh, mm-hmm. I want I want to close by uh, asking you about a, a point you had made to me before we got on the call today, and that's uh, major perils versus expected changes. What do you mean by that? What should people know and and how is it currently influencing the state of things? Yeah, right. So it depends on which natural catastrophe peril you're concerned about, and that is geographically distributed. So the, the working thesis is that over the next several decades, the temperature will continue to increase. And the causal relationship between that and natural peril frequency and severity is not the same geographically. The easiest connection and the one in which uh, scientific researchers have the most conviction is hurricanes. So if you think through how that can affect, uh, say, natural catastrophe risk in Florida, well, higher sea surface temperatures are one of the key ingredients that not only creates hurricanes, but drives severity. And if you look at the combination between higher sea surface temperature and sea level rise, which again is a fairly straight line between things like melting ice caps, sea level rise, more water goes in, sea level goes up, So a scientist will tell you that this creates an ideal launching pad where a hurricane is able to get to land in a different place and cause more damage. There's also the temperature-driven increase in the evaporation cycle. If the air is hotter, it does two things. One, it causes water to evaporate faster, which can lead to both drier uh, drier soil, which can create an ideal environment for wildfire spread. Uh, it's also not so good for flooding because if the soil and the land is dry, instead of retaining water when it rains or when you have some, some kind of severe storm, it can have the effect of not absorbing the water and just kind of pushing it somewhere else, which can exacerbate flooding conditions. Uh, Higher temperatures are also uh, correlated with increased water retention, water vapor in the atmosphere, which uh, can lead to uh, more precipitation for the same storm. So those two big events on the East Coast hurricanes and on the West Coast, uh, better ingredients for wildfire are fairly well established. The other perils, which 
some will call sub perils, but that may not be appropriate based on what kind of portfolio you have, would be these severe storms, uh, tornadoes, lightning, hail, those cause meaningful damage and aren't always included in property insurance, which kind of, again, puts that on the borrower. Um, and those are more difficult to model. Uh, the primary reason being most climate models follow a general circulation model framework, which, as you would expect for something dealing with climate, is very high level. Think in terms of a macro sense. You know, you look at uh, how a country or how, how a continent is expected to change. So to downscale that to the resolution of a tornado or a hailstorm, uh, the science isn't there yet. But over the next number of years, with increases in processing power, methodology improvements, it's not out of the question. It's just sort of indeterminate, not as tight as the relationship is today between uh, hurricanes, wildfire, and flood. Those are uh, fairly straightforward in terms of climate conditioning the catastrophe models. Well, Kingsley, you certainly have an an interesting role uh, <laughs> in this line of work that'll that'll only continue to get more important to the industry as we move forward here. Unfortunately, and in, in yeah, some right. <laughs> uh, but I I very much appreciate the insight you provide, and and I want to thank you for making the time to talk to me. So this is yeah, great. No, like the podcast, love the content. Really appreciate the invite. The higher rates for longer narrative from the Fed has led to selling in the bond markets over the last several days. Yesterday's selling lifted yields on 10-year and 30-year treasuries to fresh highs for the year. Hawkish chatter from Fed officials, the latest being Minneapolis Fed President Kashkari saying that 25 base point hike prior to year-end was likely, has been the main driver of investor sentiment. Economic data released yesterday showed weaker-than-expected new home sales, which came in at 675,000 versus a 695,000 expected figure, and a decrease in the Consumer Confidence Index for September. The U.S. Treasury sold $48 billion in two-year notes to strong demand, ahead of today's $49 billion five-year note auction. Unfortunately, today's calendar kicked off with mortgage applications decreasing 1.3% from one week earlier, according to data from the MBA. August durable goods orders have also been released and came in up 0.2%, stronger than expected. Later this morning brings a treasury auction of $24 billion of reopened two-year FRNs and $49 billion five-year notes. We begin the day with agency MBS prices better by an eighth to a quarter and the 10-year yielding 4.51 after closing yesterday at 4.56%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. Here's one piece of advice. Call your dad now and ask him what the Wi-Fi password is so he has time to find the little paper it's written on before Thanksgiving. <laughs> Thanks again to this week's podcast sponsor, Built Technology. Built is powering smarter and faster money movement for the entire construction and real estate ecosystem, all while reducing risk. To learn more, visit getbuilt.com. If you have any questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at Robbie at RobChrisman.com. Visit RobChrisman.com for more information on our industry partners 
access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the Daily Mortgage News and Commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcasts from.